Hello, friends. Welcome to Le Vital Core Salon, where you get to meet impactful women sharing how they navigate bullshit and sidestep burnout. And I am your host and salonier, Kara Snyder. And in order to sidestep burnout myself, after three and a half years of one to two podcasts a month, I took some time off over the last couple of months and stepped back and devoted some of that extra time to navigating a career transition in the middle of a global pandemic and economic crisis. So I'm back and I'm asking questions like, how does a little girl fall in love with opera and antique jewelry and eventually, and quite harmoniously, combine the two together into a multi-passionate career and some advocacy volunteer work? Well, Today's guest, professional opera singer and owner and curator of Songbird Sarah Antique Jewelry, Sarah Dukovne, will break it all down for us. Admittedly, I was a bit intimidated coming into this conversation with Sarah because I know next to nothing about opera as an art form. So don't worry, I ask all the basic AF questions so you get to learn a little. I hope you delight in Sarah's glamorous, multi-passionate story of how she jokingly became the mistress of specialized, unnecessary knowledge as much as I did. And if you want a visual reference while you're listening, check out Songbird Sarah Jewelry, no age, on Instagram. Voila, meet Sarah. I feel like when I was doing research for this podcast, your story and your ability to fuse seemingly disparate passions together have me so excited to talk with you today. <laughs> um, I was thinking maybe we could sort of hop back in time. How does a little girl from Pennsylvania come to love opera and antique jewelry so much? I really have my grandparents to thank for both of those things. Um, my grandparents on my dad's side were both in the fashion industry, and my grandfather was a huge opera lover. And actually, I learned later on that his um, late mother, my great-grandmother, um, suffered from very serious depression, and the only time that my grandfather remembers her being truly happy was when she was listening to opera records. So he grew up with this love of opera. And then when I was like two, like really, really young, he would play his CD collection. He was like a very, you know, early adapter of CD technology <laughs> when that first came out. So he had this great CD player and all of these opera CDs and he would play me all his favorites and then read me the um, stories from the little disc inserts. And he was a big Verdi Puccini fan. So we listened to Aida and Rigoletto and La Boheme and like all like the big famous romantic comedy operas and I loved them. And my grandmother um, was just a huge jewelry collector. She had beautiful, beautiful taste. And I used to love going through her collection with her and hearing the stories. And actually, um, she passed away this spring, 
and I inherited her engagement ring, which had belonged to my grandfather's mother, um, you know, the, the opera lover, and also a big jewelry lover. So I guess it all really goes back to my great-grandmother, but my grandparents really instilled that love of fine art and um, music, fashion, culture, and from a young age, I just kind of thought of it as fun, as, you know, something that wasn't um, intimidating or scary or for older people. And um, yeah, I just, I decided at 16 that I wanted to study opera because I um, <laughs> always wanted to be on Broadway. I loved dancing, I loved acting, and um even though I knew about opera, it wasn't like, I never really thought, oh, I could do this because who, who does think that? So, <laughs> so I wanted to be on Broadway and my dreams were all set. And I asked my parents um, for voice lessons around 15 or 16. And just by luck, the teacher in my area was a really wonderful and accomplished opera singer. And I went for my lesson with her and, um, after the first lesson, she took me aside and she was like, I know that you want to do musical theater, but if I'm being honest, your voice is much more classical in color and tone and strength and just the timbre of your voice is more geared toward classical singing. I think that you could have a career if you went in that direction. If you want to be trained in musical theater for fun, that's fine, but I think your professional track is opera. So I was devastated. Um, oh. I thought, you know, she doesn't understand my dreams and my hopes. And, you know, I was just, you know, a little dramatic at that age. And then I went and I saw Carmen, and it was the first time I had seen opera live. And I absolutely fell in love with it. I decided then and there it was what I was going to do, and I did it. So I <laughs> got my bachelor's from the Hart School of Music, and then I got my master's from the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, and I made it happen. <laughs> Unreal. Sarah, I think you just from our limited interactions leading up to this podcast, you probably have gotten a sense that I love questions, and there would be a lot of follow-up ones. Yeah. And I think I admitted to you before this podcast that I'm coming in cold when it comes to opera. So like I grew up in a house that was in New England that was very like pragmatic New England values. Like you work hard, you get a job. And like music was always on, whether it, you know, was the radio or things like that. But it wasn't something that was necessarily encouraged, right? Like, I feel like when I asked to play the drums as a kid, it was like, that was shut down real fast. <laughs> um, to be fair, my dad was working nights at the time, so I can, I can sort of get it now as an yeah. adult. But I feel like opera has been one of those things that I just am on the outside looking in other than like during the Olympics when you, when it's back in sort of figure skating routines. Oh yeah. <laughs> I sort of, it feels very far away. And so I guess I'm hearing this moment, you know, even though you grew up in this house where it was, it was, you know, practically dripping out of the walls, it sounds like 
What was it like for you at 16 to fully experience it in person? It was such, I mean, it was obviously a life-changing experience. Opera is, in my opinion, which is obviously biased, an absolutely, (laughs) (laughs) it's an absolutely perfect art form. It has everything. It has beautiful music. You get this full experience of being in a physical space that you wouldn't ordinarily be in, whether that's a big concert hall or opera house, or whether it's like an alternative space, like a warehouse or a black box theater, you're still in a physical space that is out of your everyday. Um, When you hear opera singers live, it's unlike hearing any other singer live, um, in big part because we don't use microphones. So it is an acoustic experience that you won't hear anywhere else of the human voice unamplified that is so big and surrounds you in this like physical sound and then the orchestra is huge so it's like this wall of sound of like this tapestry of different textures and different colors just coming at you and then the stories are amazing too and It's really, they're such human stories. They are about things that people still feel every day, love and pain and sadness and happiness and jealousy. I think it's just like art synthesized. So I loved musical theater and I, you know, couldn't really imagine wanting to do any other kind of performing art. But when I went to see Carmen, I just... I mean, no shade to musical theater, but I just felt like it was so much better because it had so many more elements and that live, raw, unamplified aspect of it was so exciting. Like it felt like anything could happen at any time and I was witnessing like this Olympic feat of music. <laughs> like, and I still think of it that way. Like. I think just the fact that we don't have any sound engineers or any, like, there's no, there's no auto-tune, there's no amplification, (laughs) like, someone super, super talented could mess up at any time. They could forget their lines. Like, when everything happens the way it should, it's hundreds of people coming together to make, like, this one live performance. I mean, I just... And I I get very emotional about it now, especially because with COVID, live opera is kind of on hiatus. Um, You know, we're not really doing it right now. And I just, I miss it so much as a performer and as an audience member, because it, I mean, it's just the best. It is really amazing. I feel like there are certain words that you use that have been circling in my head as I was prepping for this that notion of raw and it's funny because then I don't know the rock and roll part of me was like raw power and it's like right like that expression really comes from like Iggy Pop and the Stooges like from (laughs) Detroit rock and roll scene but it I feel like it's so applies to what you're talking about as well like I was blown away just watching some of the YouTube videos of your performances like 
you don't look like an exceptionally big person. So like, where does that voice come from? Well, when we talk about people who are operatic singers, it's not like one day you wake up and you just have that voice. It really is like being an elite athlete. We train throughout our lives, throughout our careers. Um, you know, once you start singing professionally, you don't stop training. You know, it's, it's really, really similar to being a professional athlete. So we have teachers and coaches and we work on our bodies and we strengthen and we take care of ourselves. However, I do think that there are just certain people who are born with like just a kind of magical combination of physiology that makes the voice happen. Um, and at that part is kind of just luck. But that being said, it, um, it just takes a lot of training to get that to happen. And I remember learning how to sing and knowing in my mind what I wanted it to sound like. I knew how I wanted the phrase to sound. I knew the artsy things that I wanted to do with my voice, but I couldn't make it happen. And, um, and that's a really natural part of learning how to sing. And now, you know, as a 33 year old woman, I think I can finally, I can finally do the things that I dreamed of doing, you know, when I was 18 or 25 or even 30. And I'm sure at 45, I'll wake up and be like, oh no, now I finally get it. I can finally <laughs> do the things. So, you know, it's like this constant, um, constant training and constantly growing. So I'm sure I have like pedagogical colleagues who could tell you exactly like what makes the operatic voice happen. I can't tell you exactly, but I do know that a lot of work happens to get there. So when I listen to like old recordings of myself, when I was first learning how to sing, you can hear that it is an operatic sound with potential, but it's in no way a finished product. So like little side rant, um, when all of those like America's Got Talent or, you know, all those talent shows feature like a child opera star, that's not a real thing. Like the human voice, the operatic voice, takes a really long time to mature. So at a young age, you can manufacture an operatic sound. You can kind of fake that sound, but, um, but it, it isn't something that children truly can create. It, it takes a lot of maturity. The voice goes through changes during puberty. Um, women go through a huge vocal change in their late 20s and early 30s. And then it's just that physical strength of your lungs, your vocal cords develop through age, hormones. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that really go into making that mature operatic sound. So, so yeah, um, <laughs> every opera singer has like, you know, some nice lady at the grocery store who's like, did you hear that girl on, you know, America's Got Talent? And we all like smile and say, oh yes, she has a lot of potential. But yeah, the real operatic sound takes like years and years and decades and, and age to, uh, to cultivate. Which is amazing because, you know, 
like you said, at 33, you're looking back and you're like, okay, I've been working on this since I was like 16 or 17 years old. And I've, I've come this far and it took that much work. And then the idea that in 10 more years, you'll think, wow, whoa, look at how much I've advanced again. I mean, it's so much effort and work. It's, and it's amazing that someone also identified in you so young, like that there was a potential there. Yes. And I'm so, I'm so lucky. I mean, it really was just, you know, kismet that I found the right teacher because, um, you know, not everyone knows how to train this kind of voice. And she is also, you know, such a, she was, she was just the perfect teacher for me at that time. She was just a gracious, patient, kind, elegant lady. And like, I looked up to her and the career that she had. And she really taught me like how, how to behave, how to keep a level head, you know, how to like have longevity in this career, which was just so fortunate because, you know, it, it kind of takes that experience to know how to teach it. And it's so funny, the words you describe your teacher with, because I think, again, as someone outside of the operatic community and, and looking in, I mean, culturally, like we call people divas all the time, but opera singers are the original inspiration for that word and sort of that generalization. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because it's sort of like I hear this nice, kind, patient teacher who's like talking about having a level head. And then I don't know if you're familiar with the art from Joseph Cornell, but he was like a big, he loved the starlets and he loved the opera singer. So I think at some point in my life, like it, that, that character has really been like etched into me. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I actually have a lot of thoughts and I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Um, so, so diva, like the word actually means goddess, divine, um, you know, just a beautiful goddess of a woman. Um, and then in opera, it's the prima donna, the, the first woman, the star of the show. And, um, it has had different connotations over time. So, you know, when you go to the opera and at the end you're clapping and, you know, the soprano comes out, you scream like, brava diva! And you're like, yeah! And that's like, that's like the ultimate compliment. Like, that's amazing, you know? And then over time, it kind of got this negative connotation of like, oh, a diva is like, Mariah Carey, who like, you know, I don't even know who's Mariah Carey, but like there was a story about someone who like, you know, put in her rider that she needed, like a whole bowl of green M&Ms in her dressing room. <laughs> or like someone who was like difficult to work with. You hear of like divas pitching hissy fits or like stomping off or, you know, all of these like women behaving badly kinds of things. And there were a few of those like legends about the divas um, in the generation of opera singers, like, you know, older than I am. So like in the 80s and 90s, um, 
you know, they were these huge stars and they were all of these stories about, you know, how they were divas in the bad sense and all the un, you know, inappropriate, like, you know, difficult to work with things that they did. And when I was going through school, uh, undergrad and grad school, it was kind of the prevailing message that, you know, we should all learn from this bad behavior. No one wants a diva anymore. So you have to be very easy to work with, you know, compliant, charming, lovely, down to earth. And I think that we all really took that to heart. It kind of like turned into a different kind of thing where perhaps people manufactured these very down to earth, um, you know, salt of the earth personas for social media. But um, lately I've been thinking about it a lot because so much is coming out in the opera community about um, very, very serious accounts of um, abuse, sexual harassment, racism, sexism, really, really atrocious things that have been committed by people at the top, people in charge in the industry. And I really wonder if that whole messaging about don't be a diva, don't be difficult to work with, was really kind of a way to keep the people at the top in charge and keep singers, especially female singers, compliant and afraid to speak out and afraid to ask for what they needed to be able to do their job well. So I think that the term diva has kind of been... Um, reclaimed and I hear you know a lot of colleagues you know refer to each other as diva in like a sweet kind um, you know endearing way but um, I think that this whole threat of don't be difficult to work with was a thing that really hurt a lot of people and really hurt the industry in the long run because um, I think that the way the art form should be is really a collaborative experience where singers and the artistic team, the conductor, the director, the designers are working together to, um, to create something as an ensemble instead of this thing where the conductor and the director and the, you know, general director and all the people at the top are um, calling the shots, sometimes in a way that's harmful to the people who are actually on stage making the art actually happen. So um, I really have been thinking about the way diva has kind of been used as a threat to, uh, to keep people from speaking up for what they really need. Wow. I'm so saddened to hear that there's yet another pocket corner in society that is having to deal with all of these isms in a really horrible way. I can see why you're spending a lot of time thinking about like, what is the etymology of, of diva and like, where did that come from and what can we take from it? But it, then also looking at, okay, we went 
too far in one direction with the bad behavior and the outrageousness. And then now you're starting to see, you know, the other side of the pendulum where it seems like it's gone too far in the other and it's eroded. And I imagine this is a bit gendered as well, the ability to advocate and be assertive. Yes. Yes. And I think women have always struggled with this, that, you know, if we ask for what we need in a way that is straightforward, there are people who can't handle that from a woman. And I think that over time, women have found ways to, you know, soften, soften our requests or, you know, make it seem like it's someone else's idea to give us what we need. But um, I hope that, you know, we can get to a place where, where women can say, okay, this is what I need from you in order for me to do the job that you are paying me to do. And for that not to be seen as an aggressive or diva request. Yes. What have you noticed from especially the women around you? I know there are definitely some male listeners for this show who I love and adore and support me and support this podcast, but the most of the listeners are women or people who identify as women. I guess what have you seen from inside in terms of how is that changing? How are people communicating differently? Is it changing yet? I think it is. And I'm really, really looking forward to um, kind of the new renaissance of the art form after COVID, because I think that we have some time now to, you know, really speak out and think about how we can be better moving forward. Um, There have been really, really important talks about race in the opera world and um, amazing artists are stepping up and telling their stories and taking leadership roles in companies um, that I think are gonna make a huge, huge difference. We are seeing um, more women taking leadership roles that you know, have just kind of been held by the same small boys club for a really long time. Um, I, I have a lot, I have a lot of hope for this next chapter of the industry. Um, and I think also everyone that I talk to has a story, you know, whether it was a story of um, being victimized for their race or their gender or their, you know, you know, I don't know. I mean, we've all, there, there are many, yeah, many just stories, whatever, yeah. like um, low hanging fruit someone yeah, could abuse it with. Yeah. So I, um, I have definitely, you know, everyone I talk to has, has a story in the industry. And I think that everyone kind of has that moment in their career where they say like, okay, next time I have to stick up for myself because this is too much, you know? So whether or not, I don't know. I mean, it's complicated. Sometimes 
sometimes I think it's not, it's not our responsibility to stick up for ourselves. The industry really needs to evolve so that there isn't that need for us to like have to stick up for ourselves just to be respected in our workplace. Um, but, but, you know, I think back to like my moment, like my moment of clarity where I was like, all right, like next time I have to act differently so that I am not tolerating this kind of behavior. And it was um, a situation where I was being really, really bullied by a director and a conductor who kind of just glommed on because I was the youngest and the least experienced in the cast. And um, the rest of the cast also was having issues with this director, but I just was the easiest target because I was the least experienced, the, the greenest in the field. And, and I was terribly, terribly bullied. And um, for me, it was a, a wake up call that I needed to walk in and present myself with a little bit more of a shell and a little bit more of like a don't fuck with me attitude, which was really hard for me, really hard for me because I had grown up with the messaging, don't be a diva, don't be difficult to work with. And I realized then how damaging that messaging was because I was trying to do everything right, trying to be so easy to work with. And it really <laughs> opened me up to, uh, to being victimized um, in this professional situation. So um, I really hope that the industry goes forward in a way where people aren't put in these situations where they're being bullied and they don't, they don't have to make that call. They can just be whoever they are professionally um, and you know, not be victimized at work. I feel like that's, that's a small ask really. <laughs> It is. It's a small ask, but a big fix. Right. Like, I think as I'm, as I'm listening to your story, first, I want to say that sucks. And I'm sorry that you had to deal with that. And I'm sorry that so many women across so many industries, like, especially end up on this podcast and we just hear, you know, shit show experience after shit show. So again, I am so sorry that that happened to you. And I want to thank you for sharing it because I think sometimes we take these things and we talk to our close friends and maybe our family and then we don't talk about it in a public way so that other women who are experiencing that can go, wait a minute, it's not just me. So I deeply appreciate your honesty around the situation. And I can't imagine how hard it was for you it's so meta, right? Like you're Sarah, the human being who then has to like essentially like act in this role of being a woman who doesn't give a fuck. And then you have to go in to do your job, which is essentially performing and acting as another character on top of that. That's a I mean, great point. <laughs> I mean, the emotional labor <laughs> that it takes and that um, hearing you must have had to exert like day after day and probably what is already a, a very long day. I mean, I 
maybe I'm wrong, but I'm expecting you have periods where you work really long, hard days and then oh, yes. periods where you're sort of in between. Games. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It was really exhausting. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it was like four or five years ago, but it was really something that really, really stuck with me because you're absolutely right. You're, you're playing so many different characters and to have to play a different persona of yourself just to not be victimized at work is is really devastating but um i think that that kind of don't fuck with me person is within me and she was someone that um maybe i had kind of softened because I thought that's who I needed to be to succeed in the industry. But in fact, kind of letting her out um, was just being more authentic to myself and like kind of unsocializing myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does to me. And I guess it also raises two questions and I'll sort of let you tackle one and or both in whatever order. But I guess when you when you talk about that sort of other piece of yourself, the don't fuck with me, Sarah, how did you summon her? And then I guess how did you prevent the burnout, right? Because you can go too far in that direction too, where you just are so throwing so much energy at like trying to be something that's maybe not as natural all of the time that it's like you can burn out. How did you yeah. balance that? Absolutely. So when I was 28, um, actually <laughs> right around the time of, of this, this gig that, that I'm talking about, um, my first husband, who I had been with since I was 16 years old, had an affair and uh, we got a divorce. So... I think, you know, from the time I was 16 to the time I was 28, I was in this really emotionally abusive, very controlling relationship where essentially my survival, my, you know, semblance of happiness or whatever I thought happiness was at that point hinged on me dumbing myself down, keeping my mouth closed not fully expressing who I was or what I needed or what I didn't want, um, just kind of suppressing myself and changing myself to keep my partner from lashing out. So I think that I, you know, just kind of stifled that doesn't give a fuck side of me for so long for my entire like you know teen and young young to mid adult life because you know if I were to really let her out that would make him angry that would make things harder for me that would you know ruin the the harmony the balance of my household so I got really really good at manipulating manipulative men. I got really good at making manipulative people feel like my ideas were their ideas. 
I kind of took pride in the fact that I could make bad situations okay. Um, you know, I, I really kind of internalized that abuse and thought of myself as someone who was strong enough to handle it, um, which, you know, is a really big regret that I didn't get out sooner. But I think that I really, um, I just kind of internalized that. And I'm a, I'm a stubborn person. When I have an idea, I, I want to make it work. And, and I think that, that that first relationship was really, you know, a good example of that, that I, there were certain times when I would think to myself, like, this is, this is terrible, but luckily I'm strong enough and confident enough. And I, I have a strong enough sense of myself that I can handle it. You know, a weaker woman might not be able to handle it, but I'm strong and I can handle it. Um, and, and I really wish that I hadn't felt that way and that I had realized that, you know, quitting can be good <laughs> when something isn't working. Quitting is the right thing to do. And, and strength, you know, maybe doesn't look the way I thought it did. So when I got out of that relationship, um, it took a while, but I realized that my idea of what it took to survive, which was, you know, being sweet and compliant and easy to work with and um, really caring about someone else's feelings for your own survival um, wasn't the way that I wanted to live my 30s. And also, I think that going through something that is your worst fear and then coming out of it makes you realize that like, all right, well, I did that and that was terrible, but it actually was fine and I'm fine and I'm here. That really changes, you know, the way you see things going forward. Like, okay, well, if that was my worst fear and I got through it, then I can probably get through other things that I'm afraid of too. So, you know, my 30s have been awesome because <laughs> once, <laughs> you know, once I got through that, I was like, all right, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah, it's so unfortunate that we have to go through these moments in life, right? Like, and I, and I say moment, like, that's just some small thing. What you've described is painful and traumatic. And just from the way you're explaining it, it feels very evident to me that you've done a lot of work yes. healing from it. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> and, and I think that should be acknowledged to people listening too. Like, Sarah, you are so articulate about what happened, you know, what you wish you could do different and acknowledging what can't be done different and how you've moved forward from it. That doesn't come easily. Like these lessons are so unfortunately hard won. Yeah. I mean, I bounced back quite quickly, which I think 
concerned a lot of people in my life. <laughs> I think like, like I oh, think, has she lost her shit? <laughs> right. I think a lot of people were like really, really worried about me that I didn't fall apart more after the divorce. Um, and I think that a lot of that is because I hid so much about my life from everyone around me during those 13 years. So when, you know, I called my friends and family and told them that my husband had had an affair and I wanted to get a divorce, you know, a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. He would never do that. And they were like really mad about the divorce, I mean, about the affair. And they were surprised that I wasn't more angry about the affair. But really, the affair was like the least of what had happened. Like, yeah, like for you, it was already, there was a pattern that was long established that you were yeah. having to daily. And the affair was the thing that set me free. Like that was the socially acceptable out that to that point I hadn't had, you know, I, I had told myself this story about how marriage takes work and no one's perfect. And if I just did better and loved harder and like, you know, was a better, quote unquote, better wife that, you know, I could get through it. But the affair was like, oh, wow, I can tell people and they'll understand now because our society accepts cheating as an acceptable reason for getting out of a marriage. And doing the work really was to, um, to learn how to give a name to the other things that I had experienced, to really learn about what emotional abuse and control looked like, and to be able to point at something on a page and say, yes, this is exactly what I experienced. I was never physically harmed, but that doesn't mean that what I experienced wasn't abuse and wasn't incredibly hurtful. So a lot of the work that I did was, you know, obviously working with a therapist, um, you know, talking about what I had experienced and then doing a ton of reading and a ton of learning um, so that I could undo all of the gaslighting and all of the control and and be like, no, I wasn't crazy. Like for 13 years, this is what I experienced and this was never okay. So um, I think that validation of being like, okay, I was always told that I was crazy, but I wasn't, this is real, kind of gave me the, the you know, that don't give a fuck energy of like, no, I, I can trust my instincts. I can trust who, like what I think and who I am. Um, even though, you know, for 13 years I was told that I, that I shouldn't. Yes. And I think something that you've sort of touched on, but I think maybe is worth clarifying is, you know, for you, the affair was, okay, now it is socially acceptable for me to do this. And also that idea that you will be believed, right? Because unless you are walking around with black and blues up and down your arms or on your face or some other physical evidence of abuse, I feel like a lot of times 
when we as women sort of allude to that or even talk about it, it's sort of like, one, it's turned back on us or it's sort of dismissed. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really, really terrible. And there are so many ways that um, our experiences are negated. You know, oh, you're being emotional. You're being, you know, you're crazy. You know, our, our society's willingness to label women as emotional and crazy, um, you know, is, is, is gaslighting. Yeah. I mean, it really is like a, a macrocosm of what you know, so many of us experience in abusive situations. And I also, you know, just want to say that emotional abuse doesn't only occur in romantic relationships. You know, a lot of people experience these things in the workplace, in family relationships, in friendships. So, you know, I find like learning about these patterns of abuse um, are so useful really to everyone. Because, I mean, these things happen all the time. Yes, yes. Sarah, you mentioned therapy was helpful to you, of course. And you mentioned there were other resources and things you read. I hate to think that someone listening to us right now might be suffering. But I think, are there any... Any tools, any resources that you'd like to share that you found really powerful for you? Yeah, um, a great organization that really helped me and that I still work with um, is called the One Love Foundation. And it is a nonprofit that teaches people the um, 10 healthy relationship behaviors and the 10 unhealthy relationship behaviors. So it's a great website. Um, I believe it is joinonelove.com. And it, um, it has great blog posts, um, local resources if you, you know, need help to get out. I know that right now with COVID, um, so many people are stuck in abusive relationships and they are really physically stuck there because, because they have nowhere to go with COVID. Um, so there are great resources there and uh, really helpful blog posts. And I just found that just seeing those 10 unhealthy relationship behaviors was like the first thing where I was like, oh, that and that and that, you know, and I was like, oh, wow, like my relationship exhibited all 10 of those behaviors. I wasn't crazy. And um, I have since become a... um, an educational facilitator with One Love Foundation and an ambassador. So I actually did a really cool program that I'm so proud of where um, during an opera that I did last fall, Pagliacci, which is um, about an abusive relationship. My character is murdered by her husband. I worked with One Love and the, um, the opera company that I was working with And I did workshops in the area for local high schools to teach them about about opera and also about healthy versus unhealthy relationship behaviors. So definitely check out One Love Foundation. Also, um, you know, each, each area has hotlines that you can call. I think something really important that One Love teaches is to have a safe breakup plan I believe that it is a third or maybe it is 
two thirds. It's, it's an astoundingly high number, but um, many women are more likely to be killed by an abusive partner after they leave that relationship. So, um, so having a safe breakup plan is really, really important and making sure that you, you know, if you feel unsafe with your breakup, um, take these steps beforehand to make sure that, that you're, you know, keeping yourself safe. Oh, Sarah, I can't thank you enough for one, sharing, two, bringing an educational component to this audience around something that's so deeply important. And you, sort of like we started at the beginning, I feel like you are just such a wonder at like, weaving together all of these different passions that you have. I feel like we haven't even got to the jewelry aspect yet, (laughs) which I think is so fun and interesting in its own right. But just the idea that you were like, okay, I love opera. I've been through this situation. I've learned from it. I feel like there's so much value in the One Love organization. And then you figured out a way to both introduce, like, I think you said it was teenagers, Mm-hmm. Like healthy relationships and also opera at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> it means so much to hear you say that because it really has been like a journey. It wasn't like one day I was like, all three things that I'm passionate about work together in perfect harmony. It, um, I always kind of felt like my interests were all over the place. Like I could be an opera singer or I could be a therapist or I could be a writer or I could be a jeweler. And when I talked about these things with people, you know, some people said, well, you got to pick one. Like, you know, if people hear that you're interested in too many things, they'll think that you're not serious about the things that you are serious about. So essentially, if you're an opera singer, don't talk too much about how you have other passions because people will think that you're not fully invested in opera or they'll think that, you know, you have like a quote unquote plan B or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, or you'll just be a weirdo because they can't right. put in a box and <laughs> well, check I'm it. Well, I'm definitely a weirdo. <laughs> That's probably why we found each other through all the like ether and noise and static. <laughs> but yeah, there was like always that thing of like, you know, you have to niche down, you have to focus. Um, and really, it's just been in like the past maybe two or three years that everything has kind of gelled and come together. So... Now I can like weave jewelry into this because jewelry actually fits in with the divorce and relationship thing, the opera thing. Ooh. And yeah, like it all fits in. It all fits in. Okay. How does it go okay. together? So, um, well, first of all, background about me and jewelry. I've always loved it. I've always been obsessed with antiques and just old things. And I think that that really, you know, plays into opera too. Like, you know, opera singers are always learning about history. We're always like, you know, getting really excited about things that happened a hundred years ago, you know, or more and, and jewelry, you know. And glamour. And glamour, exactly. I mean, a lot of the professional photos I've seen of you and even when you're performing, like you're not just wearing like jeans and a t-shirt. I mean, you are dripping in bling and like have a ball gown on. Yes, yes, definitely like the glamour, <laughs> elegance, kind of fantasy 
aspect of it. So yeah, so that like really goes hand in hand and I've always loved entrepreneurship. So like, even as a kid, like I was always coming up with like ideas, how can I make this like lemonade stand more profitable? You know, (laughs) I always just enjoyed that kind of stuff. So I have had resale businesses over the years. Um, My ex-husband and I actually flipped houses for a while and I had a clothing resale business and I love shopping and I um, love jewelry. So I started just kind of researching jewelry like maybe a decade ago and I just fell down this rabbit hole of researching and forums and jewelers forums and collectors forums and just you know kind of nerding out about it in my spare time amassing all of this really specialized really unnecessary information (laughs) and it was just a fun also a woman after my own heart Right. Like just like we're fun at parties. We have an awful lot of trivia in our heads. Exactly. <laughs> About like things that like really specialized things that like no one, you know, like why? Why that? So <laughs> then I started just kind of like finding amazing pieces. And as a self-employed opera singer, obviously I couldn't afford to buy them all for myself. So I thought, okay, like maybe if I start a business. I can rescue these pieces and find them homes and get all my, you know, resale licenses and, you know, kind of have the inside scoop on like how to find the really good stuff and turn it into a business. So I started with like five pieces and I thought, okay, I'll I'll sell these pieces. If they don't sell, I'll just have five amazing new rings. If they do, then I will keep reinvesting the money and grow my inventory and turn it into a business. And they sold and that's what I did. So it's been about two years. Um, It's only been in the past year that I've like really, really gotten serious about it. But here's where the relationship side of things come into it. Um, I, when I got divorced, I really missed wearing a diamond and it was the first time in my life that I had been in control of my own finances. So I fell in love with this amazing antique ring. It's a turn of the century um, dinner ring with old European cut diamonds. And I was like, all right, I am gonna buy this for myself. Like I don't have to ask anyone. I can just I can just do it. Like I'm my own, I'm my own person. I'm gonna buy myself this ring because I want to. And um, I wore it to rehearsal when I got it, and people asked, like, oh, what is this ring? And I said, oh, it's my divorce ring. And I felt like it gave people permission to be happy for me and to see that I was celebrating this milestone in my life. Like, this is a happy thing for me. And... um, when I posted about it on my Instagram years later, um, when, when my business was going, um, women started coming to me and saying, you know, I, I read your story. I saw your divorce ring. I'm going through a divorce as well. This is what I'm experiencing. I would really like to celebrate my divorce with a divorce ring as well. So um, it has been a small niche in my business, but really, really meaningful because I 
share this experience with these women and I can really help them celebrate um, in a way that, you know, perhaps wouldn't be embraced in, you know, the more mainstream jewelry, um, jewelry industry. And, you know, I can help them heal as someone who has also been through it and is on the other side. So yeah, divorce, jewelry, opera, all in perfect harmony. And it just seems like the space that you're holding for people, right? Like when they're coming to you because they're like, oh, I love your divorce ring that I saw on Instagram, <laughs> right? It, that feels, you know, like you're like one toe in the pool. But then just with how open you've been in our conversation today, like I can't imagine that you're not holding a space for them. Like that your sales process isn't like, oh, good, which ring would you like? That it's about actually just like recognizing like, hey, yeah, you're taking kind of a bold move here and people are going to talk about it and have questions about it and maybe think you're a weirdo for having a divorce ring. Like, it just seems so cool. I don't know. Thank Am I you. making a bunch of incorrect assumptions? Is that no, kind of how it no, works? that's absolutely true. I really, um, I really enjoy talking to all of my clients. So, I mean a huge part of what I love about the jewelry business is that I get to be a part of people's lives with these like major milestone purchases. So, you know, whether or not someone's buying something for uh, an engagement or a wedding or a divorce or, you know, to celebrate a promotion or a graduation or just because they wanted to and this piece is, you know, an exciting thing that they're buying for themselves or because, you know, they want to, you know, commemorate COVID with a piece that, you know, they'll remember it with, like, in a happy way, I get to be a part of their lives. Like, something that I have sourced and something that I love and have put my soul into then becomes an important part of their lives. And the thing I love about Instagram is that I get to see when they're wearing it and, you know, see how it is continuing its life with them. And with antique and vintage jewelry, it's like, this is just the next chapter in a very, very long life for these pieces. So I get to be a part of continuing the legacy of the piece. I get to be a part of celebrating something in someone else's life. It's really, I mean, it's a very personal human interaction. This is going to sound like a weird question, but do you, with the pieces you're collecting, does a history of that piece come with it? It usually doesn't. So provenance um, is, you know, like who, who it belonged to, where it was from. Um, sometimes you know, but mostly you don't. So usually these pieces come from wholesalers who, um, you know, are sourcing from many estates. So you don't know exactly which estate it came from. Sometimes you do if you're buying directly from the estate. Um, we use different things called, you know, like hallmarks to figure out who made the piece, but sometimes, you know, those aren't present. Um, and then 
there are many signs that tell us where it was from. So the cut of the, you know, where and when, the cut of the diamond, um, what kind of metal was used to make it. So, um, you know, pieces made during World War One and World War Two um, are made of gold and palladium, not platinum, because platinum was um, being used in the war effort and you couldn't use it for um, non-military purposes. So, you know, if you find a piece that's made of palladium, uh, you can, and you know, that with the style of the piece and the cut of the diamonds and the way it looks usually lets you know that it's World War II era. Um, so there are many different clues that piece together the puzzle so that you can, you know, put together the, the picture of the, of the piece. Um, but usually, you don't know exactly who it belonged to. Got it. So it's sort of like when they unearth, you know, a painting and then it becomes like the art world goes bananas sort of looking at, is this really a Leonardo? And then people are like weighing in and looking at the brush stroke. It's, it's very similar to that, right? Yes, yes. And, you know, I mean, fine jewelry is fine art. So there are certain people who specialize in different things. And the cool thing about the jewelry world is that it's very collaborative. So if there's something that, you know, isn't my area of expertise, you know, I can just go to someone who specializes just in that specific era or, you know, that kind of stone or this kind of piece. So um, it really is like kind of a collaborative treasure hunt, like, you know, sleuthing mission to put together the pieces of the puzzle. Which those folks must be fascinating because I think you and I are are probably more similar than you probably realize because I've been benevolently stalking you online (laughs) far more than you've probably been looking into my details. But in that we're interested in a lot of things. Like I always have a, like a book going on something and I feel like I'm a little bit jealous. I have to say in a way that like you get to talk to these people that have such a ridiculously niche down specialty Right. Like I'm sure you're coming across people that like all they do is look at jewelry from the 1920s and they know everything about that sliver of your universe. Right. Yeah. We're like gemologists are fascinating. Like, you know, I send, I send things to my graduate gemologist and, and he does all sorts of science on them. And like, you know, I, I know a great deal about gems, but he knows a great deal about geology. Like it's really, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to like think that you know a lot about something, but then realize (laughs) that truly you like your ton of information is just like the top piece of like this huge, like boulder of information. So it's, it's really fun. I mean, I love meeting new people. I love like building my network and just like having my portfolio of experts and it's, and and they love it too. I think I know they do because when someone specializes in something and you ask them about it, they get to talk about the thing that they do. Oh yeah. Like I love when you get to see someone like open up and come alive like that. Like, I had had a friend who she's a biologist and has been a biologist for 
decades now. And it's so funny, like when I would engage her on one of her topics, which was, I believe, a tiny sea snail. Like Mm. this was her thing, right? It was, that is her jam. (laughs) And like when you saw her talk about it and like having someone be interested and open to listening and curious about it, it's like you just see someone come alive. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm like obsessed with specialists because it's so fun to see someone just like blow open like that with energy. Yeah, it really is. Oh, amazing. And Sarah, how do you make it all work like together? Because I imagine, do you, do you have to travel like most performing artists? Yes. So I know when I talk about my life, sometimes it feels like when I was little and I was like, I'm going to be like a princess veterinarian scientist, (laughs) you know? And like, now I'm like, I am a, you know, antique jewelry curating opera singer who lives in an RV. Okay, so, (laughs) but it's true. So um, I got remarried last year and my husband and I are both professional opera singers. And in 2017, we decided that we um, wanted some kind of home base, but obviously as opera singers, we don't get to have that because when COVID isn't happening, we are all over the world. Um, A gig is, you know, anywhere from one week to eight weeks, depending on what it is, usually around a month, month and a half. Um, Plus rehearsal, right? Well, no. So usually, well, okay. So this is all like the whole thing. So usually operas only run for like, one to four weeks. So, you know, you could show up, let's say it's a concert, you show up like beginning of the week and then the next weekend you could do your three performances and then go home. Or you could rehearse for a month and then have like two weeks of performances. So it's really, you're in a location anywhere from like one week to like let's say eight weeks, depending on how long the run, the run is. So it's pretty short. It's not at all like Broadway where shows can run for years and years. Like it's a, it's a defined amount of time and it's relatively short. So that means that like every month or so you are moving to a different location. Like, I mean, you could be anywhere. And generally speaking, singers either live with patrons of the company, so you're a guest in someone's house, or you're in a hotel, or you rent an Airbnb. So you're like all over the place, which is really fun. But after a while, like you're living out of your suitcase, and you have like... And having to be on... Like, I imagine when you're, like, staying with a patron, like, you're literally not really having a moment to just fully decompress. Yes. Yes. And that's very difficult for someone like me. Like, I'm definitely an extroverted introvert, so I love talking (laughs) to people. But, like, if I don't have that time to, like, be by myself in silence... Amen. I can't do it. You know, like I have to have that time. So yes, for me, like the, the patron housing thing is very difficult because yeah, you constantly, you get home from a long day and it's also your job to play the role of opera singer. 
and be charming and answer those questions like, oh, how was rehearsal? Like, tell me what it's like to be an opera singer. And you're like, I just want to watch like Netflix and like not speak to anyone, but it is my job to schmooze you. So well, now you can point them to this podcast and say, exactly. here, have at it. Yeah, listen, you can, you maybe you can buy yourself an hour off here and there. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so in 2017, um, we decided that we were going to buy this RV so that we could essentially pull our home with us around the country and have our home base wherever we went. So we've been full-time RVers since 2017. And um, technically what we have is a camper. It's a fifth wheel camper and we pull it with a huge truck, which you saw in my Instagram. Yes. (laughs) For anyone who, for anyone who hasn't, seen Sarah's Instagram, I highly recommend. And also there is just a really fantastic photo of her stepping out of the biggest pickup truck (laughs) I've ever seen, like fully decked out in total opera glam. It is amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what we drive. So we like set up the camper at the location um, and then we detach the truck and use that as our commuting vehicle. So I can be seen driving around major cities in like this huge monster truck with tinted (laughs) windows and people like crack up when I step out of it because I am like not the person that they imagine driving that truck. And um, I'm really good at parallel parking it. Like I'm great with that truck, which is something I can, I can drive it with the camper. I don't like to, but I can and I have. So um, that was, you know, that was a moment of pride, but I, I usually just prefer my husband to do it. Um, I, I will take like maybe every one of three days of driving when we're like doing a big cross country trip. But yeah, knowing that I can is really, really empowering. Um, so we live in a camper full time. It is 380 square feet. It has a washer and a dryer. Um, it has a full kitchen. It has a bedroom and a living room and a bathroom. People always ask the toilet flushes. When you get to like a place, you like hook into a sewer system. So it's like you're living in a house with a flushing toilet. It has water. It has electricity. It's like it a has tiny a- house, right? It's, it's like just- a tiny house. Exactly. Oh my God. So I, I have to ask, like when you, obviously you're not wearing like all the glam all the time. No. So you roll <laughs> up to a, a, a park to, to park the RV and sort of set up and you probably are wearing like normal, just casual clothes. And then before your performance, I just picture you exiting from this camper and are people around you like, what the fuck just happened? Yes. (laughs) Yes, they definitely are. Because, yeah, exactly. When we first pull up, like, you know, we're in, like, our driving As you're hooking up your sewer. (laughs) Yeah, like, we're in, like, you know, I have, like, my boots that I wear, like, when I'm, like, you know, hooking up the sewer. Exactly. Um, You know, not looking fancy. Um, But, yes, when we, like, when we we roll out in our our fancy performance stuff, there are definitely looks. Um, which is the fun of it. You know, I feel like it's definitely not, it's definitely not what you expect. (laughs) Do people ask or are they just mostly staring? 
Well, they usually ask um, like when we're practicing. So, oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So they usually our, our immediate neighbors usually know that we're opera singers before they see us, you know, in our in our gear, um, because we have a keyboard in the camper and we practice and it's loud. So, you know, people are usually like, hey, I heard someone singing opera. And then, you know, then they find out that, yeah, you're living next door to two opera singers. So I imagine that comes with its own sort of negotiations and headaches. Like, do you, do you typically like introduce yourself first or do you kind of just let the sound introduce you first? We usually let the sound introduce us. Um, so the camper community is really lovely. Um, a lot of people who are retired, um, you know, families on vacation, depending on, you know, what time of year and where you are. Um, but a lot of retirees and um, people are usually really excited, like to experience something different. And it's a good story. And it's like, you know, one of those like, oh, camper life, like you never know who's going to be next door to you. <laughs> like people are usually really happy about it, um, which is really great because most opera singers who live in densely populated areas, live in apartments or condos or whatever, um, have some kind of horror story about their neighbors, um, you know, calling the cops or calling management or basically keeping them from practicing in their own homes that they pay for. Um, so we always are respectful about it. You know, we only practice during like daylight working hours. We're not keeping anyone awake. But, um, but we are really fortunate because, you know, I, I know a lot of colleagues who, you know, maybe live in New York or live in, in a major city and um, they're practicing during working hours, but they have terrible neighbors who are, you know, threatening them with whatever oh. because they, you know, need quiet time to watch Netflix or whatever. So... <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, we're lucky. Knock on wood. We have never had any problems. We've never had any complaints. But if we did, we're also transient. So it you know wouldn't be a problem for very long. That's true. Because then you really don't have to get into the thick of it too much. Where if it just gets to a point where it's too painful, you're like, okay, there is another place to stay around here. Yeah. Sarah, you are just so creative and and wonderful. This is this has been such a joy. <laughs> this has been really fun. I feel like we we've zoomed all over the place. I mean, I feel like we've taken twists and turns that I don't even think I fully envisioned coming into this conversation. <laughs> so I wanna I wanna leave it with you to to help me close the show. What do you most want La Vital Core Salon listeners to know or to take away from our conversation? Okay, so I think the big thing, like if I could tell myself anything, like, you know, 10 years ago or, you know, anytime, like truly is, you know, don't put up with things that don't make you happy. So, you know, back to what I was talking about, about emotional abuse, um, abuse in the workplace, 
that feeling um, that is socialized into us of needing to be easy to work with, of needing to be ladylike and compliant. Um, don't accept that for your life. I think that we know in our guts and in our hearts whether something makes us happy or whether something makes us uncomfortable or you know whether we feel like our life could be better and i think we owe it to ourselves to trust that little voice and um and know that there is something better out there for us so um I would actually encourage everyone to check out uh, One Love Foundation and read those 10 healthy versus unhealthy relationship behaviors because I think no matter what, you know, whether it's your romantic relationship, your family relationship, or work or friendship or whatever, um, there, there are always those unhealthy behaviors that we put up with from people because we think we have to. And I think um, being able to name them and being able to say, I'm not crazy. These are unhealthy behaviors that I don't want for myself. Um, that's kind of the first step in, in you know, extracting ourselves from those relationships, putting up those boundaries and, um, and taking steps to, uh, to speak up and be our own advocates. Sarah, thank you so much. I feel like... I've been so fortunate on this podcast to come into contact and have orbits cross with women who are using their voice, but I feel like this was an extra special episode in terms of how you're using your voice powerfully in your occupation and how you're using the power of your voice to to reach back and lend a hand to other especially women behind you. It's, it is an honor to talk to you today. Thank you so much. That really means the world to me. This was, this was such, this was such an honor for me as well. Is it just me or do you love when folks like Sarah are able to really create a life so creatively unique to them? I'm so grateful to Sarah and Katie on her team for making this come together and for Sarah being so open and generous with her story. And please support my guests. If you're on Instagram, join both of us over at Songbird Sarah Jewelry for a visit. And don't be shy about sharing this conversation with someone you know who might need a little inspiration. Before I bounce, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to producer Craig Snyder for always making us sound wonderful. My assistant, Darlene Victoria, Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the excellent theme song. And don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.